Morning, church. Welcome this morning. If you're a guest, a particular welcome to you, and I encourage you to stop at the information booth out in the courtyard, enjoy the heat, and uh, get to know a little bit more about our church. Uh, speaking of courtyard, uh, last Sunday, uh, as nearly every Sunday, Doug Rye was greeting us as we came on campus. But after a seemingly successful and routine midweek surgery, Doug uh, experienced a massive brain bleed. And last night, he went home to be with our Lord. Memorial service will be held in a couple of weeks. Uh, so stay tuned for when that will be. But once again, the uncertainty of life on earth strikes home. And throughout these past weeks, it seems more than usual, I've been reminded that so many of us are going through difficult times. Be it the loss of a loved one, loss of health, loss of marriage perhaps, some other relational loss, loss of employment, finances. And we're in need of prayer from the church family. And so if you are one of those who would appreciate prayer for what you or someone you care about is going through, I'd like to ask you to just stand where you are and we the family We'll pray for you this morning. So anybody like to stand and acknowledge need for prayer? Okay. Amen. As you look around and see those who are standing, if you know them, I'll pray specifically for them in just a second. And then if the opportunity comes after the service to gather around them and encourage them and pray with them, uh, that's what church family is all about. So you may be seated and uh, allow me to pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity we have to come together this morning as the family of God. And Lord, as family members, we are not exempt from trial, from loss. We know that life on earth is temporary and full of trouble at times. But we are so grateful for the hope that we have in you. And Lord, I just want to pray for these individuals that stood. You know them. You know their names. You know why they stood. And you are a caring, loving Father who wants to minister to them in their time of need. Lord, you are sovereign in all that you allow, in all that you do. And we trust you in the midst of our trials, even though we may not understand all that's going on and why it's going on. 
but we communicate to you our trust. And I pray that you would fill us with peace, even joy, as we contemplate how you want to manifest yourself through the situation. We love you and thank you so much for who you are, for what you've done for us by giving your son so that we have great hope beyond this life. Thank you for your word, which you have given to guide us. You gave us your word because you love us and care for us and know what's best for us. So as we look at it again, once, uh, once again this morning, Lord, uh, fill our minds with truth and may your spirit guide us in application in Jesus' name. Amen. For you who uh, may not know me, I'm uh, Roger Poppin, a retired pastor of this church. Occasionally, I'm asked to fill in for Pastor Eric. The staff brought a chair for me to sit on in case I need it. They think I'm old, and they think that because I am. But anyway, I'm, I'm just honored to, to fill in once again this morning as we continue in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. And so I encourage you to turn to the passage we just read. It will continue to be on the screen, as well as the outline which you received, which is designed to help you follow along. And while doing that, let me also announce that our summer Romania missions team um, is about to embark on that trip to Romania. And uh, we have an opportunity to pray for them Thursday morning at 7 o'clock before they embark. So if you're so led, we invite you to come 7.30 or 7 o'clock Thursday morning, and we will pray for the Romania team before they leave. Now, as we've studied the life and the expanding ministry of Jesus so far in Matthew's gospel, we've also seen the growth of criticism, particularly from the Pharisees, that group of religious Jews living in the time of Jesus. In chapter 9 alone, they accused Jesus of blasphemy, claiming to forgive sins, which only God can do. They accuse him of socializing with sinners. They accuse him of saying that his, by saying that his healing ministry is demonic, a work of Satan. And as Jesus' popularity among the people as an authoritative miracle worker and an amazing teacher grows, the Pharisees are becoming so threatened and so angry that as we come to Matthew chapter 12, we read in verse 14 that the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And the specific issue that causes this anger to explode at this time is the action of Jesus and his disciples on a Sabbath day. Two incidents here seeming to be on the same day greatly anger the Pharisees to the point of wanting to destroy him. He's a threat to our nation. He's 
particularly to us. He's opposing our teaching, our interpretations. He's a threat to our authority. He must be eliminated. Now, now before we look at these incidents of supposed Sabbath-breaking, let's review and put into context what we see in the Scriptures about the Sabbath. Some of the main references are listed on the outline. I won't refer to all of them except by summary. But going all the way back to Genesis, chapter 2, we read this. The heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, that is, six days of creation, have occurred. And on the seventh day, God finishes his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from his work that he had done in creation. Now, the word Sabbath is not used there, but the principle is, is uh, stated. The, the, the principle of rest Ceasing from work, resting from work. As a matter of fact, the word Sabbath means ceasing. Ceasing work, resting from work. So way before God chose Abraham and his descendants to be his chosen people, the Sabbath principle is introduced. And God declared that day to be holy, sacred, and a part unto set apart unto him. Several centuries later, Abraham's descendants have multiplied into a large and significant people group, and they end up in Egypt for 400 years as slaves, which ends when God uses Moses to deliver them and lead them to the land that he had promised Abraham. Now, during that journey, God meets Moses on Mount Sinai and gives them the Ten Commandments, the basic moral laws of God, which are to guide them as a God-honoring people. And the fourth commandment, the longest one of the ten, pertains to the Sabbath. From Exodus 20, we read this, words of God to his people, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I made it holy at the end of creation. It is to be a sacred day, holy meaning set apart unto me. My command to you is keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. This is how to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not work, your son or your daughter, your male servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heavens and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy." Now, how serious is God about keeping this day holy? We learn in Exodus 31, God says, above all, keep the Sabbath. 
Whoever profanes the holy day shall be put to death. That's serious. That chapter also refers to the Sabbath as a sign. That is a a signal, a, a visible indicator that Israel is committed to God and God to them. Six days of work, seventh day of rest, as a sign that we, God and you, the Israelites, we belong to each other. Leviticus 3, 23 adds this note. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest in all your dwelling places. Holy convocation. That is, the Sabbath is to be a gathering time for the people of God. Holy being, this is to be separated unto him as their creator. Then in Genesis 5 passage, the Israelites are getting ready to enter the land. God gives them another reason for keeping the Sabbath. He says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. They are to remember on the Sabbath that God delivered them from their slavery in Egypt. So because I created you and redeemed you, what I ask of you in return is to take one day of the week to cease from work, to rest, to worship me. And people of Israel, I'm asking this for your good, your well-being. I created the Sabbath not to burden you, but to help you, to give you a principle for your own well-being. As Jesus says in Mark 2, the Sabbath was made for man. It's for him, for his good. So what I conclude from these Sabbath day scriptures is that the Sabbath is a holy day of rest and worship, serving as a sign to the nations that Israel honored God as their creator and redeemer. It's a holy day. It's a sign to the nations that they belong to God as their creator and redeemer. Now, in the rest of the Old Testament, we have some elaboration regarding the work that was to cease on the Sabbath, laws pertaining to harvesting and lifting and buying and selling, eating, etc., etc. But over the next several centuries of time, Jewish scholars felt it necessary to interpret Sabbath law for the common people. And the Pharisees became the self-appointed referees and judges. The Talmud, which is the major collection of their interpretations and traditions, has 24 chapters on Sabbath laws alone. 
It became ridiculous. An unnecessary burden for the people. Some examples. The limit for travel was 3,000 feet from one's house. A Jew could not carry a load heavier than a dried fig. Throwing an object in the air with one hand and catching it with the other was prohibited. False teeth could not be worn because they exceeded the weight limit for burdens. 24 chapters of such stuff. When my former wife and I went to Israel 20 years ago, this fall, the six or seven story hotel in Jerusalem where we stayed, uh, we happened to be there on a Sabbath and noticed that it had a couple of elevators designated for Sabbath keepers and a couple of elevators designated for us Gentile pagans. I made the mistake of getting on one of the Sabbath elevators, which automatically stopped at every floor. Why? Work. Pushing the button was considered to be work, therefore forbidden. Not in the Old Testament, but in the Talmud, the Pharisees' interpretation. It's no wonder that Jesus said in this in Mark chapter 7, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment. There it's singular. The ultimate command to love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. You have rejected that command in order to establish your tradition. They were lifting up their ideas and their interpretations, their traditions to the level of, thus says the Lord. So with that background, we come to today's text. And we have two examples of this legalistic environment. Incident number one, verse one, at the time Jesus went throughout the grain fields on the Sabbath, his disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, and that immediately, they must have, this grain field must have been within 3,000 feet of their home. Anyway, when they saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what it's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Were they right in their accusation? Well, Old Testament law did forbid the work of harvesting grain on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees interpreted that to mean that it, for a hungry person to just pick up a, to pluck a one stalk of grain and then pull the husk off around it so it could be eaten, that was harvesting. 
forbidden, says the Pharisee. The Old Testament law also commanded that the outer edges of a field could not be harvested by the owner, left standing so that the poor and the hungry would have a source for food. But to feed oneself, as did the disciples here on the Sabbath, was in the eyes of the Pharisees a violation of God's law. So Jesus responds with, this is the Papa translation. Come on, you idiots. Get a life. But what he really said was, haven't you read, Pharisees, haven't you read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Jesus takes them back to a story that they were familiar with. 1 Samuel 21, where David and his men are, are fleeing from King Saul, who wanted to kill him. When they came to the temple, they were hungry. They needed some food. The priest gave them the only available food. It was called the bread of presence, the, the show bread. These were 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. They were, these loaves were baked weekly and placed on display in the temple for all to see as a reminder of their privileged status as God's chosen people. But the law said only the priests could eat it. David and his men, not the weren't priests, but and they also knew the law, they ate it. No one condemned them, nor did the priests, for they were aware that the purpose of the law is not to burden the people, but serve them, particularly in time of need. Pharisees, you know that story. And also, verse 5, have you not read in the law on how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane, profane the temple? And how do they profane the temple? By working on the Sabbath. That was their job. Jesus said, they're guiltless, without guilt. So Jesus uses biblical events in the past to make the point that you Pharisees, you're out of line. You've missed the point of the law. And then Jesus says, verse 6, let me tell you something else. I'm here. Something greater than the kingdom is here. Something greater than the temple is here. You make a big deal about what's going on in the temple. I'm greater than the temple. The kingdom promised in the Old Testament and its king are here and you're rejecting it. And by the way, that king is me. 
it is I. Thus adding further fuel for their rage. And then verse 7, Jesus further uses scripture to accuse the Pharisees of their wrong attitude by saying, if you had known what this means, what's the this? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. If you would have gotten that principle, Pharisees, you would not have condemned the guiltless, the disciples. You Pharisees are demanding that people sacrifice all sorts of activity on the Sabbath, and you never got the message that of more important to God than all of your interpretations and traditions is the commandment of love for God. Showing mercy to people in need. You forgot that. If you had grasped that basic important principle, you would not have condemned these hungry disciples. Besides verse 8, the Son of Man, the title Jesus, uses most of often to refer to himself, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Another claim to be God, the creator of the universe, and thus its Lord. And as such, I'm telling you, Pharisees, you got it wrong. You got it wrong. Incident number two, verse nine, he went on from there and entered their synagogue. Seems to be on the same day. And Jesus, as usual, went to the Sabbath, on, went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day to worship with his fellow Jews. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? In other words, this man with a deformed, non-functioning hand was at the synagogue as well. Perhaps it was a regular practice of his, or perhaps he was brought there by the Pharisees to set a trap for Jesus and see what he would do. For in the minds of the Pharisees, only medical help to save a person's life is allowed on the Sabbath. Anything else can wait. So Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus responds with a question to them. Which one of you has a sheep, if it, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Or how much more value is a man than the sheep? So Pharisees, I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? What do you think? Would you do good and rescue your sheep if it falls into a pit? Or would you wait till the next day? Would you lift him out and violate your own man-made definition of work? Does your tradition teach that showing mercy on the Sabbath is wrong? Hearing no answer, verse 13, Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. He healed him. And as expected, the calloused, hard-hearted Pharisees said nothing. 
were in a rage. They went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Then in verse 15 through 21, we see Jesus' response to the awareness of the Pharisees' plot to destroy him. And I'm not going to uh, take the time for us to read it this morning. Just let me summarize what I think it says. Because Jesus knows that his time to be killed and to obey God and offer his life as a sacrifice for sin, that time has not yet come. So he leaves the synagogue quietly. He doesn't want to be a rabble-rouser. Large group follows him. He continues to heal people, but asks them to keep it quiet. Why? It's not my time. His mission is to be a humble servant of his father, to give his life for the people. But it's not quite the father's time. Meanwhile, I'm just going to quietly share the word, preach the gospel, heal the people to confirm that I am who I say I am. And to support that, Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah, who in summary says that God's servant, the Messiah, will be led by the Spirit to quietly present truth in a spirit of humility during this stage of his ministry. But ultimately, he'll be victorious over the enemies, and he will bring justice and hope to the Gentiles, which we begin to see in the book of Acts as the message of Christ, now crucified and risen, goes beyond the borders of Israel. So much more could be taken from that wonderful paragraph, that quote from Isaiah, but I want to conclude with a, a couple of thoughts from Mark chapter 2, which records the same incidents in Matthew as Matthew 12. But Mark puts together two statements of Jesus that are not found in Matthew. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus didn't say that in Matthew, or it wasn't recorded that he did. But both Matthew and Mark add, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. So two questions for us as we wrap this up this morning. Do we believe that the Sabbath is for us today? My answer would be yes and no. Colossians 2 tells us that the Old Testament practices pertaining to food and drink, the various festivals, including the Sabbath, are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance, Paul writes, belongs to Christ. In other words, the Old Testament points to our need of Christ and the work of Christ. 
And since that work was accomplished through his life, death, and and resurrection, those laws, including Sabbath laws, have in some way been fulfilled by Christ. The, The early, the followers of Jesus, the early ones after his resurrection, discerned that and thus transferred, if you will, their getting together on uh, as, as believers from Saturday to Sunday. For it was on the first day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead, and it was on the first day that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, giving birth to the church. Sabbath laws for Israel were not transferred to the New Testament church. So in regards, is, is the Sabbath for us today Sabbath laws? No. But let's separate Sabbath laws from the Sabbath principle. When God created the universe and man in six days and rested on the seventh, he was establishing a pattern for the good of his creation. When Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man, he's telling us that the Sabbath principle for the world is for the good of the world. And if the two reasons given to Israel for keeping the laws were their creation by God and their redemption by God from slavery in Egypt, isn't that good reason for us to celebrate our creation by God and our even greater recreation through faith in Jesus. Jesus died on the cross to redeem us and lift from us the burden of sin and its consequences and the burden of earning our salvation, our favor with God by doing this, 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 and this. But isn't that why we come on Sundays? Isn't that why you're here? We come because we believe that the Sabbath principle of rest and worship is still valid. We come because we believe our creation and redemption by Christ are worth celebrating every week with our fellow believers. We, in the words of Hebrews 10, do not forsake the assembly of ourselves together, as some, he says, are in the habit of doing. Because we believe that the Sabbath principle, rest and worship, is still valid. And the second statement of Jesus, that the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath, begs the question, is he the Lord of your Sabbath? Is he our central focus? This weekly day of rest and worship? Or is he often replaced by other priorities. Yeah, we have nothing else going on today. Let's go to church. 
George Barner did a survey of churchgoers. He found that the definition they gave for being a regular attender one Sunday a month. Lord of the Sabbath? So assuming that we believe that the Sabbath principle is valid for us as a created, redeemed by God people, is that seen in our lifestyles? Do people look at us, what we do on Sundays, and say, ah, they belong to God? Does it show that we really believe that the Sabbath was created for our well-being? It doesn't show that Jesus is our Lord of our Sabbath. Let's think about that as we take communion together. Encourage you to grab this cup. And I think of the invitation that was given at the end of chapter 11. Eric talked about this last week. And uh, in which Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That was said in the context of chapter 12, in which Jesus emphasizes the, the heavy burdens laid upon the people by the Pharisees. They were weary and heavy laden. And Jesus said, come to me. I'll deliver you from that system. I'll give you rest from that type of work. You don't have to gain favor with God by doing this and this and this and this and this. Just come to me. I'll give you rest. So if you have come to Jesus for forgiveness, salvation, life, you are following him as your Lord, Lord of your lifestyle, I invite you to take communion by first opening the, the bread end of the cup containing the piece of bread, the symbol of Jesus' broken body, and then open the other end for the juice, which represents the blood that Jesus shed on the cross so that we can be forgiven of our sins. Let's pray, then take the elements together. Thank you, Lord. For the authority of your word. Thank you for the example of Jesus who clarified the meaning of the law, who clarified the principle that we all need of rest and worship. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sins, for lifting from us the burden of 
earning favor with you. Thank you that because we are believers in Jesus and are followers of him, that you are our hope. You are our salvation. You are our life. In you, we are at favor with God. So thank you, Jesus, for dying for us, for rising from the grave, and then for coming into our lives so that we might experience your rest, your redemption. Thank you for the opportunity to take the bread and the cup in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name, amen.